Hello and welcome to the Data Journalism Podcast. My name is Simon Rogers. I'm a data journalist, speaker and teacher and data editor at Google. And my name is Alberto Cairo. I am a professor of visualization at the University of Miami, an infographics designer and journalist, and also a book author. We love using data to tell stories, and the music you can hear is the sound of data made with two-tone, an app that turns numbers into tunes. And it's also some data from the website of today's guest. And this is the Data Journalism Podcast, the only podcast as far as we know, and at least so far, that dissects the latest trends in data journalism around the world. In each episode, we will explore the latest in data journalism, and we will chat with some of the world's top data journalists. You will get to find out how they do what they do. So subscribe at datajournalismpodcast.com to see how data is changing the world of journalism forever. Hi, Simon. Hey, Alberto. How's it going? Doing all right, you know, just taking care of things, classes, taking writing, care of business. Yeah, writing the new book, see if I can get it done once and for all. Get oh, it we out. have to talk about that when you're near that. I have to, you're yeah. ahead of me. I'm so bad well, at writing books. I, I've been doing a lot of interviews with tons of people who like are 20 so far because the, the book, as you know, uh, is titled the, the Art of Insight, and it's mm. a book about the people who produce data visualization, people who I sort of like essentially had picked. I want to talk to this person and then to this person and then to this person. So it's a series of conversations with people. That That's what the book is. But it's a lot of work as any as any book. So let's talk about um, today's guest. Do you want to introduce her? Sure, sure. Uh, today we, we are lucky to have uh, Amanda Cox. Uh, Amanda is a um, uh, former a data journalist, graphics, a journalist, graphics reporter uh, a, who used to work before for a, for the New York Times. She used to be the head of a, a section in the New York Times called The Upshot. And, and then she left. And right now she's leading a team of data journalists and data visualization designers at a USA Fact. It was great chatter, wasn't it? I think the, the, just this this whole area of editing public data to make it more available for people, that's a mission of good, it seems to me, that uh, it's just a, a, a social good that we need more of in the world. Yeah, and I, and I see Amanda's work as U, at, at USA Fact as an extension to what she was already doing at the New York Times. Mm. I think that there are organizations out there that, without saying so explicitly, they are acting like journalists, like journalistic organizations, putting good information, reliable information out there for the public to use and, and to consume and to use. So let's dive in. Good morning. My name is Amanda Cox. Uh, I currently work uh, at a little non-for-profit called USA Facts. Uh, and before that, I spent most of my career at the New York Times. Hi, Amanda. Thank you so much for making the time to uh, talk to us today. Um, I, I think that we can get started with a with a very sort of, with a question that I'm super interested in. Uh, before we get into what USA Facts is and so on, and so on. but how is your job different right now than it was before? So what, is, what are the main differences between working for the New York Times and working for USA Facts? 
today for you? Uh, USA Facts is very little. Uh, the New York Times is very big. Uh, and so there's some trade-offs on both sides of those about uh, how many colleagues you have uh, and, you know, the other way, like... What is the reach of your work, uh, and so that though that's one of the one of the major differences in my in my new job from my old job. So why do, why don't you tell us a little bit about USA Facts? Because I guess that part of our audience will not be very familiar with what it is. Yeah, uh, USA Facts is a little organization. Uh, it was started by uh, Steve Palmer somewhere like I'll get the math wrong five to seven years ago. Uh, in part. Uh, Steve Ballmer was a Microsoft CEO for a long time. Um, he he retired. He has some other things he's interested in. Uh, he owns the Clippers, which is a basketball team in Los Angeles. Uh, and he has a, a philanthropy uh, ideas that he works on with his wife, um, and she works on separately. Uh, and part but part of one of the questions that he struggled to get answers to for him for himself uh, was just like what what are the scope of the problems. That America faces and who, what's kind of, uh, you know, at different levels, uh, different levels of government together. And he, he found it harder to get answers to those questions than he thought was ideal. And so started this little project uh, with a goal of making uh, government data more accessible to people. So when you go to USA Facts, obviously you see, you see things like COVID data and the midterms are kind of featured, featured there and, and including kind of like ballot stuff which i found really useful this is my first my, my first time in term election i can vote in america it's like the ballot papers alone mm -hmm. are incredible read um when you're doing the stuff obviously you were kind of famous at the times for really kind of stretching what you could do with data sorry for biscuit and um what you know how many opportunities do you get to kind of be adventurous with the data here or really is it about just relaying it for people yeah, um, it's funny that you mentioned that that midterm project because that's one of the first things that my team has gotten off of uh, with ambition, uh, and I think of it as like stupidly complicated in that, and I think of that as also like a thread through a lot of my work at the Times too. That like it was like, am I still really making stupidly complicated election graphics? Like, is that like is that a thing in my life? Um, and uh, so, yeah, I think, you know, one of my greatest weaknesses is being attracted to things that are too hard. Uh, but when you land them, they're cool. And then sometimes you just don't land them. So tell me, how how is it stupidly complicated with the midterm? Let's just talk through that project. And how did you think about it? when you were putting it together? And also, how did you think about it in ways that are different from how you would have thought about it in the past? Yeah, so uh, the the conceit behind this project is that there's a lot going on in the midterms that are not federal races. Uh, there's, you know, tons of local races and state races that you know about too. And in part, uh, you know, in part for me, I thought, you know, even for my own personal questions is like, I don't even know what the boundaries are on some of these things. Like how many races of like circuit court three have I voted on? And I don't even know what, what circuit court three even is like, who does it serve? Who does it? Whatever. And so some of the conceit behind this project was like, you know, it, it happens in two parts. It's, you know, first we show you a map of all the different levels of geography, like the different types of communities from small ones, like school boards to the bigger, you know, bigger ones, it's states in most cases, you know, th those range from like, you know, it's layered. Some people are going to vote in like, you know, 
eight different communities, different boundaries, different shapes. And so like just for, you know, the person in me who likes like interesting shapes, thought that was like an interesting map challenge. Uh, and then the second part is, is a little attempt at telling you like, how are those communities doing on a variety of things? Whether that's, you know, is crime rising? You know, have home prices tripled in the last decade? Those kind of ideas, right? So that's what the idea of the project is. Um, there's a couple of values of USA Facts that I think it espouses. One, uh, you know, the idea of can we combine data from different levels of government? I think that's a core thing or different types of government. That's a core thing that USA Facts, like, I think uh, has in it. And then two, I think one of the values of USA Facts has is this sort of bias towards comprehensiveness. So it would like rather do something that covers the whole country as opposed to like, you know, tell a really great story about a single place, um, you know, if you have to choose between those two. And I, you know, I, I think there's, there's clear wins in both approach, but those are like two of the sort of values that I like is supposed to at least embody. I have observed in the in the work of USA Facts in the in the recent months that, and this may be just a misperception, uh, that there are more pieces that are slightly more narrative than they used to be. In the past, they used to publish more single graphs or something, but now I see pieces that sort of like thread several charts together. So you mentioned before uh, that that USA Facts is a tiny organization. You said there's 50, 50 people. Uh, how big is your team? And can you talk a little bit about what the composition of the team is and how it relates to other teams within the organization? Yeah, uh, so I have uh, three full-time teammates uh, who join me. Uh, and uh, then we have some some freelancers, uh, including some of my famous people you might know, who have been spending a little bit of time uh, time with us too, uh, as my, like our, our little, uh, little group within USAFX. Um, you know, USAFX also has an engineering team, uh, it has a product and content team, it has a marketing team. And so, you know, we interact with those people in uh, the other teams. Uh, we're still in part like figuring it out. Uh, and, but, you know, you know, we depend on the marketing team for their marketing muscle and we depend on the engineering team for some platform type choices and like a bunch of stuff that like, you know, I think I've taken for granted in my past job and like wish I didn't have to know about now, but um, that kind of, so we, you know, we interact with them in that, like, you know, we are part of this organization, uh, you know, uh, and, but like in part where, you know, I wanted to build a team that was like kind of independent-ish by design, right? Like that you don't have to worry about other people's roadmaps, you know, one of my happiest parts of my uh, career at the times when there was just a, like a relatively small group of us who had some like time and space of ideas and freedom and could just like do things, we do whatever we wanted by ourselves. And so part of the like trip, whatever, part of this little stunt is like, is that reproducible if one focuses on it? Can I just have a small group of people uh, who have some freedom in time and overlapping skills? And is that reproducible is some of the question behind this. It's so interesting because I kind of feel like when you have a small team, you're always hoping to get a bigger one. But then when you get a bigger one, you realize actually having a small team makes you kind of inventive and creative in ways that perhaps, you know, when you have a bigger team, it's not as, uh, it's not as, it's not as easy to do that. But I did, I did have a question about um, this kind of mission to make data available because I feel like, you know, it's interesting, it's, you know, that Steve Barmer is the, 
you know, the, the founder of, I think a lot of people who work in tech companies had this idea of opening up information, making it accessible on, on its own. That is this virtue, which you know, I've always, it's something I always believe would happen, right? That as there's more and more public data, we would open up and get it more available. Do you think, but do you think it's that impact has been had? And then if we're at a time when there's so much information and so much data, we're also at a time when there's so much misinformation and so, do you think that there comes a point where there's almost like too, so much data out there that people can't consume it and then, you know, just get absorbed into, into stuff that isn't true? Yeah, I think I can't remember. It may be Sarah Cohen, who is a sort of a car person at the time who taught me this. I'm stealing this idea from someone. It's not an original idea. But the, 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 the idea was uh, with more data getting being put on the internet like the good stuff just stopped being being put on the internet like there was a phase at the beginning where it was like more data open like hooray good and then uh the good stuff like just stopped being being put on the internet and so uh you know there's trade-offs to everything like there's you know i don't know that i have really anything smart uh to say about misinformation and it's a thing that like you know speaks to a lot of people's hearts and i just don't feel like you know, I don't feel like those fights are real. Like those fights are not about like mm. the existence of data or not, right? They're about something deeper than that. And so, like, I don't know that I have anything to smart to say in that space. No, it's it's. I think it's interesting because you know we all want more data out there, and I think USA Facts is a great tool for making that stuff more available. Do you get a sense of who uses it and how they use it? Yeah, uh, you know, the, some of like. Who uses it is a thing that the organization is working on now. Like whose problems are we really solving? Like, you know, I think part of that is about it's an organizational problem that like, uh, you know, so there's a lot of government data like out there uh, and maybe sometimes it's organized exactly the way I want uh, and maybe sometimes it's not, right? So if I want to learn about a place, for example, I have to visit, you know, 30 different government websites uh, and like master the various forms and interfaces to to understand that. Um, you know, the most success that USA Facts has had, like a lot of organizations with its data, was on COVID stuff. Um, and, you know, I think USA Facts became uh, a COVID resource for a set of people who wanted uh, local data about, you know, COVID case counts and who probably didn't want to visit uh, Johns Hopkins or a New York Times or someone else that was like one of the competitors in that space, either for ideological or other reasons. Um, and so, you know, the most success it's had was in in a in a COVID space in terms of like real true audience, like which I think is probably true for a lot of organizations. I do feel like COVID was kind of transformational in um, in how people think about public data. Was but if it was transformational, has that lasted beyond COVID? Yeah, as as co as I know COVID still right, but as as you know, we come out of the pandemic. Do you think the the interest in kind of public information that was sparked by that is there? Was it specific to that? Oh, I think it's not reproducible at all, or it's not like a thing. It's like you know, like you have a thing that people care about more than they care about anything else, and like mm. it's going to like this data is actually going to change their behavior at a time when it's like unknown and scary. And so I don't think that, that that's like I think that's unique, and like I don't think you like say like oh now we understand how to like how like you know it's like if you have a very specific problem, I think the COVID stuff was very specific to that. So, so one thing you said in an interview before is that 
um, there should come a time when when data journalism, rather than people talk about data journalism, they should just talk about journalism and and you know, data just becomes a key part of that. Do you think that that is still the case? And do you think that we, we get to a point where looking for public data just becomes so kind of second nature that really it does, it's almost like not a special thing. It's just part of our lives in a positive way. Yeah, I mean, I've said some lots of things that are like totally untrue, but I do think that like the, I would stand behind that one that I think that when you don't need the adjective anymore, that is when it becomes closer to real, right? Like, and I think I was like, I think there. I don't know, I've said it multiple times, but it's like, when is gay marriage real? It's when you don't need the adjective. You know, when is data journalism real? It's when you don't need the adjective. Like, you don't need a special prize. Like, it's just good enough by itself, right? Like, and so that, I think, I think I still, I still believe that. And I still believe, you know, uh, yeah, I, I think that's true. One of the purposes of these podcasts is to expose listeners to uh, people out there who are producing great work with the expectation or perhaps the hope that they will find their stories inspiring and perhaps they can borrow ideas for, for their own progress. So I have just a very general you know, question about how did you get to where you are right now? I mean, I already know the answers about that, but I think that our listeners can benefit from, from that. How did you get started? How did you become a data journalist, sort of like a very prominent name in the field? And then after that, you got to USA Facts. Yeah, uh, so I got started kind of by accident, um, you know, after college. Uh, I spent a couple years uh, working at the Federal Reserve Board, uh, which in a sort of a starter job, a job that people like uh, don't stay in for, you know, like the typical path is you stay for two years and you go get a PhD in economics or you join a public policy program or something. Uh, I was there during the 2001 recession and the question I wanted, I, I felt like I wanted to really know like something deeper about like what was the economists were running like regressions and their computers. And I felt like I wanted to understand like that in more depth, right? Like I didn't want to push buttons. I wanted to like really understand it. Uh, and so I went to grad school in statistics uh, and my first year there, uh, it was all theory uh, and theory wasn't what I like, even though that was exactly what I was asking for. I was asking like, let's go do some math, uh, like to really understand this stuff. But like, I wasn't, I, w I had no comparative advantage at theory. Uh, my comparative advantage was with real data. And so I was there and I wasn't super happy and I didn't know what I wanted to do with my life. And one of the things I applied for was to be an intern at the Times, not expecting at all to get it. In part, just it was a part of a batch of things to see, like, what am I disappointed by when I don't get it? Right. Like it was that it was that kind of like framing of rejection. But they, the Times was in a, a point where they were getting more thinking more about specialization, about like, maybe we should hire people with formal training in cartography or other things. Uh, and so uh, I got the internship that summer. Um, I uh, I went, this was the summer of 2004, uh, I had a nice summer, I went back to grad school. Uh, my second year in grad school, there was more data, so it was way more fun for me. Uh, but at the same time, I feel like I was not super well positioned uh, in the sense that I had all these different uh, RA offer jobs that like, you're only supposed to have one. And like, I had like, four and everyone knew about one other one that's why they had to like pay me in some weird way but like and i either like like the people but i didn't like the work or i like the work but i didn't like the people i was just like not in a position like and i think like really for myself i was just not in a position where like 
had enough ownership of ideas to write a PhD. Uh, and one day, uh, Steve Duenas at the Times wrote and he said, hey, we have a job opening. Do you know anyone? And I was like, well, this solves this little house of cards game I have in grad school. I'll just quit grad school or go on leave. I went on leave for a long time. Uh, and so that I stumbled into it really by accident. Really, the, you know, the lesson is uh, internships, try on stuff, uh, apply for things that you don't think that you will be successful at um, is kind of the, the lesson in it is how I, how I get into it. As the economy gets less kind of stable as we go and, you know, moved uh, the way and this happening around the world, what kind of data sets do you think are going to be the ones that will be really interesting to look at and keep an eye on over the next, um, over the next year? If you were telling people, look at this on USA Facts, this would be a good place to start. You know, I don't know that I have the best answer for that about what is it about look at USA Facts. It depends what kind of question you have for yourself, right? Like, you know, I think the big questions in America are about things like inflation and things, you know, is that, uh, you know, GDP growth, if you care about the economy. But I think like more interesting data is often like more local than that or answering more narrow questions than the big, the total big econ questions all at once. So kind of data near you is going to be the, the stuff that's, that's interesting. You know, I think just the the smaller, uh, you know, I mean, even the econ stuff, like I like the stuff about like, how do we how do we see the surplus in people's checking accounts run off over the next year? I think that's going to yeah. be interesting to watch. You know, home prices, I think, are one that, like, you know, clearly those have already started to fall somewhat. I think it's a thing that, like, how fast those fall, and that's going to vary by geographic market. So maybe your local is right. Like, uh, I don't have the, like, the true perfect answer to, like, your, you know, I mean, I know what I will watch. <laughs> I'll watch the S&P 500 is what I will watch, but that's not really a real-time indicator of the economy. So, no. That is super useful, it actually. Off. That's a good yeah. place to start. So, Amanda, um, one of the things we've been doing, and probably we should give you some warning of this, is we do a little pop quiz at the end of these podcasts where we ask people a couple of questions. The first question we're going to ask you is about if you could only use one tool your top tool, what would that be? The internet. That doesn't count. You can't say the internet. It has to be a thing. I'm sorry. R. <laughs> R, okay, yeah. Why R? That's interesting. You're the first person to say that, I think, on these interviews. Because for me, it's the I think it's the language that I can think in most fluently, and it's multi or flexible enough that I could do basically whatever I wanted in it. I remember that I started using R myself because I heard that you were using it back in the back in the time. Somebody told me, Amanda, Amanda Cox is using this this programming language. I said I should look into it, and I got into it. And yeah, it's such a flexible, powerful uh, programming language for for analysis, for visualization. It's it's fantastic. Second question: If you were to recommend a book for anyone who wants to learn a little bit about how to use data in journalism, what would that be? I think it would be a book about the subject that they want to use it in. It's something, it's some subject matter expertise book. It's a content book. It's not a skill book. So, so it depends what you want. Uh, it's like, do you want to do econ stuff like Simon was talking so let's about? So let's say econ stuff. For example, if somebody wants to do data journalism related to econ. I mean, now it's like macro or micro or like you need a more specific topic. I think you need to like, uh, 
I don't, I don't have a good, you know, Egon stuff. I would say read Tyler Cowen's blog and probably he, like he has books too. Was, that's what that was. So that's what I um, Okay. Last question. Um, pie charts or tree maps? Depends if you have more than three slices and if hierarchy is important to you. That's, and so speaks a good data answer, that question. Brilliant. Thank you, Amanda. That's great. Thank, Thank you. you so much for, for making the time for us, Amanda. Thank you.